the current American administration is tired of being a world superpower. Are we talking about a major shift in a trend, which would be the trend of the decline of the United States from its status, its abdication of its status as a world superpower? Welcome to the New Year of Gary podcasts. We've missed doing this and we're excited by our 2022 guest lineup, starting with the brilliant Shmuel Bar. Dr. Barr is the founder and CEO of Interview, an Israeli-based software company that has developed an integrated, semantics-driven platform for fully automated real-time analysis and meaning mining of unstructured textual documents in various languages. Dr. Barr served for 30 years in various positions in the Israeli office of the Prime Minister. Since 2002, Dr. Barr has headed research projects, some of them for the U.S. government agencies, and published extensively on issues relating to the Middle East. Our main topic of discussion will be the current conflict around Russia and the Ukraine and the actual international meaning of it all. Ending in some quick-fire news on Iran, its nuclear program, and the reconfiguration of the Middle East around this issue. Enjoy, subscribe, and share. My first question is, how are you? What's keeping you up now? Obviously, we're going to talk about Russia, but the biggest thoughts that you have these days? We have to always distinguish between the immediate and the important and the strategic and the historic. So obviously, you know, everybody's asking about Russia. Will Russia invade? Will Russia not invade? And I think that that's already a foregone question. In other words, our constant assessment for quite some time is that Russia will not invade because there's no reason to um, uh, to invest in military force and uh, money and to risk in enhanced sanctions, etc., when you can get most of what you want uh, just by threatening to do it. So, um, so that is not the question whether Russia will invade or not will not invade in the Russian uh, context or in the Russian East European context. Then the question is, uh, how far can Russia? get in achieving its goal of reinstating a new uh, regional world order in which Russia is returning to some level of uh, status that is comparable to what the Soviet Union had. And uh, then the question is, uh, how uh, how far can the Americans do, or will, are the Americans actually interested in blocking that, or have they reconciled themselves to a new world order in which the United States uh, uh, has uh, forgone its, uh, or let's put it this way, it's regretted its commitments, uh, its legacy commitments, and is trying to get out of legacy commitments and uh, even formal obligations. So uh, here the question is, the of course, not necessarily the current issues, but the uh, the strategic issue is how is this um, relationship going to form between the United States and NATO and the EU on one hand and Russia on the other hand? And where does China fit in? Does China fit in at all? Uh, and this, I believe, would be the strategic question. Well, the historic question would be, uh, are we talking about something that can maybe do some minor uh, modifications for the next year, two years, three years? Or are we talking about a major shift in a trend, which would be the trend of the decline of the United States from its status, its abdication of its status as a world superpower? First, I wanted to also alert our uh, listeners to the fact that uh, your company 
uh, provides a monthly update on uh, a strategic outlook on two key regions. One is Middle East and the other one is Russia. Uh, you have released uh, one report on Russia right uh, now in January, and I had the privilege to have a look at it. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about, about this genre, but also about the most recent development that you see in Russia and perhaps also in the Middle East, according to the strategic outlooks that, that you uh, produce? Insofar as the Russian issue is concerned, um, I believe that we are looking at something which uh, actually we saw it half a year ago. And uh, I mean, it's a constant in Russia's, in Putin's particular strategy uh, towards the West, towards Ukraine, etc. Um, Putin does believe that, a, uh, that the fall of the Soviet Union and the dismemberment of the Soviet bloc was a... A historic uh, mistake; it shouldn't have happened, and uh, it, somehow or other, this has to be uh, fixed, rectified. Um, now, he does identify that the current American administration is tired, uh, not only tired because the president is old, or he belongs to a certain school, or because he has pressures from the left in within the Democratic Party, but it's tired of being a world superpower. Uh, the shift to, the, to Asia is basically an idea that, okay, we have a new, uh, we have a new uh, nemesis, which is China. We're going to deal with China, all of this stuff with Europe and uh, Russia and uh, the remnants of the Cold War. Uh, we, want to, uh, we want to get rid of this. We don't want that on, uh, as a, uh, on our doorstep. And therefore, uh, uh, Putin says, well, I'm actually doing Biden a favor. I am creating a crisis, which, by, which both Americans and I know that I'm not going to invade. I have no interest in invading. I don't want to take over a country of 45 million. I don't want to get involved in the middle of a winter in a, in a war. I don't want to have to uh, push NATO and Europe into uh, uh, more extreme sanctions. But by doing this, I create a crisis and I allow Biden to say that we are on the cusp of World War III. And I, Biden, am going to prevent this. Now, how am I going to prevent it? Well, Russia wants certain things. We're going to try to defuse this by giving Russia certain things. And then Biden can give Russia what Biden actually wanted to do anyway. In other words, let's this whole thing about its expansion of NATO, it was a mistake from the beginning. So we will give, uh, it's more legitimate to give Putin um, uh, commitments not to expand NATO uh, in return for preventing World War III, right? Um, I, uh, we will remove sanctions for the Crimean adventure, and all of this is in order to prevent World War III. So basically, Putin is doing a, a favor to Biden, allowing him to give Putin what he really wanted to give anyway, and Putin is getting what, he's, what he wants. And that will allow the Americans to say this is a great victory uh, because we've, you know, uh, Biden can get the uh, Nobel Prize for Peace as long as Putin is standing there in, uh, uh, with him. Um, and, uh, and Biden can say now we can deal with the uh, Chinese threat because we have uh, bended uh, bridges with Russia, maybe we can mobilize or recruit Russia to help us against China, which is, of course, a pipe dream, which is ridiculous, but it doesn't matter. So basically, this is a win-win solution for them both. 
the other thing which we have to remember is that um, Russia, uh, Russia is in the Soviet Union. It's not behaving as the Soviet Union. Uh, the Soviet Union was an extremely orderly decision-making process and very, very centralistic. Uh, what's happening now in Russia is that uh, Putin is not giving clear and unambiguous directions. And what you see is that the same uh, Kremlin official will be saying two, three things to the same person in the West in negotiations on the same day, because he doesn't know what Putin really wants. So he wants to say enough things so that no matter what happens, uh, he said the thing which fits what the president wants. Now, this creates a lot of ambiguity and a lot of, uh, a, a lot of um, uh, uh, difficulties in reading Putin's mind. And this we have to understand uh, uh, is one of the reasons for this uh, running around and, you know, Putin wants this or Putin wants that, because we're hearing a lot from different people who are supposedly close to Putin, who are saying completely different things, but they themselves are saying absolutely, totally, diametrically opposed things on the same day to the same people. Can you give us some specific examples of um, the sort of policy which, um, you know, would be disbifurcated or, or, or um, you know, multiplied? Um, or can you share with us, you know, how did you, how did you manage to get this data? That's really well, intriguing part. Uh, first of all, uh, um, within Russian social media and Russian discussions and with Russians, there's a new term that's appeared over the last year and a half. And I think it's more or less uh, corresponding to the period of the COVID where um, uh, Putin sort of retreated into a bunker. When you have a president of such a, a naturally centralistic state who... Uh, somebody can meet with him, even from inner circles, only if he goes into um, uh, some sort of, uh, a, um, a, a, you know, uh, uh, isolation for a week before he meets with the president. And nobody knows who was the last person or the first person to meet with the president. Then it creates a lack of uh, knowledge among uh, the various uh, actors about what the president is thinking, who did he meet with last? Uh, I mean, the whole, what we used to call Kremlinology was basically based on, we know who is meeting and who is standing next to the uh, to, to the leader, et cetera. Now in Russia, they're calling this the Voyna Vashin, uh, Vashin, the War of Towers, an allusion to the Kremlin's towers. And basically, uh, you we have numerous cases of, uh, senior people, very senior people, speaking to Western uh, diplomats or Western uh, leaders and saying two, three different things which can, are clearly interpreted in completely different directions regarding what Russia wants. And they're saying it on the same day to the same people. And uh, Westerners and Israelis who come in contact with these people get very confused. They said, well, in the morning he said this, in the afternoon he said that, in the evening, uh, and we know that he is considered to be close to Putin. What the hell do they want? Why do you think this is not a more widely reported development? Because honestly, I have not heard this argument before. Maybe I was just oblivious. I find it uh, extremely interesting. Think about uh, just recently, 
the Russian government passed an amendment to the constitution which um, accords the president much higher uh, control over all of the local governments. Now, for the last years, Putin has been managing Russia, which is you know, an enormous country, very diverse, by uh, giving free reign, for example, in the COVID crisis to the governors. And then he can say, okay, I let you do what you want. If there are if it hasn't succeeded, that's your problem. It's your fault. It's not me. In other words, he has plausible deniability, right? Now, the problem with what that was that when those local governors were succeeding, then they saw themselves as in, rightfully as uh, political figures who have rights because they have uh, succeeded in something for their constituency. And they have become competition for the... Uh, for the uh, verticals of power of the Kremlin. And therefore the verticals of power uh, basically imposed on Putin said, you know, uh, we're losing control and we have to reinforce our control. Now, the result is that uh, you can't have plausible deniability because if you can can, uh, decide that you are going to uh, cancel elections, you're going to depose governors, you can uh, actually disperse uh, local uh, parliaments, then you're responsible and you're accountable. So uh, what's happened there was that on one hand, Putin uh, wanted to decentralize so that he won't be blamed for everything that happens. On the other hand, the verticals of power weren't happy with that because they said that this may cause some uh, decline in our own controlling an old own status. And uh, the result is a sort of mixture of uh, political uh, methods. Um, now, uh, in a country like Russia, uh, it's very difficult to see how this is going to work in the long range. I, I think that we're seeing this in many areas, in the domestic area, certainly, and uh, in foreign policy, it started to creep into foreign policy. What methods of, of data gathering or what sort of, um, you know, what the range of data, you know, let, let me say impress our listeners with, with your system and with your analytical data capabilities? First of all, uh, we are collecting uh, both social media and mainstream media um, and analyzing it, but analyzing it or what I would call ontologically. Now, uh, one of the things that people don't, pay attention to is that language, especially in the era of social media, changes very rapidly. For example, two years ago, that concept of the war of towers wouldn't even appear. It, 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 and you can't really translate that. I mean, if I say in America, the war of towers, somebody will, somebody will think that uh, you mean, you know, Lord of the Rings or something. Uh, and, uh, and therefore, a, a system has to be constantly refreshing and learning new, the hermeneutics of concepts, the hermeneutics of words. The second thing is that there are uh, things that you have to aggregate across languages. In other words, information which exists and it's said in one way or in another way or in one language or another language and you have to aggregate it. So the system, the way that we uh, do things is to I, to collect a large amount of information. Now, the important thing is when you're saying big data, most of the real information, which is the uh, tripwires and the things which change things in the world, haven't been uh, big data, okay? Uh, 
So, for example, uh, there was an attack on the World Trade Center. Actually, it's very little data. In other words, 12 people and maybe another 10 somewhere uh, altogether. These are the needles in the haystack. But the needles in the haystack actually precipitated something which became strategic and historic. Now, that means that if you, first of all, collect a large amount of data, and then instead of looking for something, which brings you into what we call the streetlight effect. In other words, I look for my lost keys under the streetlight because that's where it's easier to look. Uh, now, there is a normally in intelligence and in research and in political research, uh, there is a paradox here. In other words, I think I know what the world looks like. I, I, uh, I, I promulgate my, my um, intelligence requirements in order to get information on that part of the world, which I think the world looks like. I get information which is obviously uh, mainly focused on the things I asked for, and that enhances my belief that this is really what the world looks like, and so on and so forth. So this actually is one of the main reasons for uh, strategic uh, mistakes and strategic uh, uh, intelligence uh, um, in intelligence failures, uh, like Pearl Harbor, like the Yom Kippur War, like the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, like Barbarossa, like D-Day for Hitler, etc. So. Uh, the way to overcome this is to collect the information and allow the information to tell you what is prominent and what is not, but to aggregate it in such a way that the prominence will be clear, clearer because you are merging the information and you're bringing together things which mean the same thing. So it's meaning mining. Uh, basically, this is the concept behind it. Based on, on the most recent data, um, do you have any like practical examples of uh, where your work is now uh, pointing? You know what what sort of surprising or emerging trends um, do you do you see in the past months uh, in Russia? If you can share such an information, well, something very prominent. I mean, I can uh, look at something, for example, in the Middle East. Some time ago, we did a project for a Saudi. Uh, royal government uh, agency and we were asked to tell them in general what do what does the saudi people want what do the saudi youth want in other words they were preparing for reforms they wanted to see if they are uh, you know what exactly uh, would re resonate with the people now uh, we went into that tabula rasa and we suddenly realized that the most pro one of the most prominent issues was why can't women drive okay now if you look at this from outside if you had asked anybody uh, outside what is bothering the saudi youth uh, they would tell you well it's probably inflation and its uh, economy and its uh, unemployment and it's uh, in other words the regular things that we think about because that's how we think about our own worries in the western world but then we, uh, by just collecting this information, we said, now this is interesting. Why, why is this so prominent an issue? And then it turned out that most of the uh, unemployed but educated and sometimes Western educated uh, Saudi youth um, who don't have money to pay for foreign drivers to drive their wives around, 
have become slaves to their women, taking them and the children everywhere because the women can't drive. And that that became such an important issue. Now, that's uh, amazing. That, yeah, really and now, amazing. it's not something that somebody thought about before, but when we thought of, when we saw it, say, hey, you know, that is, that really is logical. You know, it fits things. And uh, then uh, what happened is that the, uh, the, the crown prince came out with a statement that since women could ride camels in the time of the prophet and cars are now the camels of today, then there's no reason why women can't ride the camels of the today, which are cars, okay? Uh, the enthusiasm that broke out in the Saudi social media was immense. They called him the prince of the youth and the et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in other words, uh, you can see the mood, you can see quite a lot about the way that people are thinking and sometimes uh, something that you will not get from traditional intelligence cover. Traditional intelligence cover is based on uh, intelligence services whose job is to keep everything quiet and okay, who are supposed to go and tell their leaders that things aren't quiet and okay, which means that the first thing the leader says, now you're telling me that things aren't quiet and okay. Well, first of all, I fire you and I bring somebody who makes sure that things will be okay. <laughs> so, yeah. um, um, I, well, I, so, I, I would just, yeah. I just think it's much more widespread than just in, you know, uh, autocratic societies. This is, um, I think it's a widespread. Oh yeah, definitely. And I, I think that this is one of, one of the reasons, one of the reasons for, uh, wrong assessments. I mean, look, uh, both as academics and uh, foreign ministries and intelligence services, we have a tendency to talk to elites and to people who are connected to government. And these people have interests, even if they are not intentionally lying or dissimulating, but a person who is, let's say, uh, the head of an agency in a country, any country, uh, is constrained not to say I am a failure, okay? Um, uh, I'll give you an example that before the Arab Spring, uh, about four or five months before that, uh, we predicted that uh, the uh, Tunisian and Libyan and, uh, and Egyptian regimes and the Syrian regime for other reasons are, um, uh, uh, are, are liable to, uh, uh, to fall. And the reason was that if you have a, an old leader who has been very autocratic and very centralist for many, many years, and is being surrounded by, for 20 years by the same people who are yes men, who have never made decisions in their lives. The moment when you have the old leader getting older, not being able to control, and nobody else is controlling, and you have frequent economic crises and things like that, then you have, uh, you can have the evolution of a crisis where nobody can control it. And um, uh, in the case of Egypt, for example, the Egyptian army is, you have to know, is composed of uh, people who are, who come from the areas where they're posted, which means that they're not going to open fire on their cousins and brothers, which means that the regime was, would fall. And that the only, uh, uh, the only, uh, political force in the country that can take over would be the uh, Muslim Brotherhood. So I 
gave that assessment and I, um, I spoke with a senior person in the Pentagon and he sent me to a senior person at the National Intelligence Council. And he said to me, you know, Shmuel, your um, Egyptian scenario is far-fetched. I said, why? He said, because Omar Sleiman was here just uh, two weeks ago and he promised us that, that everything is under control. So I said, well, I'm so happy to hear that because when I was a young analyst, we were concerned about our good friend, Ashar Viran. We went to speak to our good friends in the Savak and they told us that everything was under control. And two weeks, two weeks later, Khomeini landed in Tehran. Never ask the person whose job is to keep everything under control if everything is under control. It's a very good, very good point. If you would be able to predict the most likely trajectory in Ukraine with Russia between now and a week from now, what would it be? First of all, Russia is in no hurry because it can sit and it can maintain a crisis. The longer it maintains a crisis, then the longer Putin is in uh, in the center of things and he is the focus of attention of everybody, which is already, as far as he's concerned, a, an achievement. Because so Will he, he want hates. to drag it out instead of... Yeah, do you, do yeah, you think yeah, that we're uh, looking at months or maybe even years of this sort no, of stalemate? I, I, think, I think he will he will drag it he will drag it out for a certain period of time, uh, and during that time he'll have the Americans coming to him and okay what can we do? and it'll be ups and downs. So every once in a while he'll do an exercise and say oh he's doing an exercise maybe this is a ploy in order to start a war etc. And uh, then. Um, uh, he, uh, we already see, for example, that uh, apparently the Communist Party in Russia as a sort of stalking horse has brought up the demand to, and, uh, to, uh, um, to recognize the legitimacy of the separatist uh, uh, provinces in Ukraine. Now, by doing that, he'll say, look, I, I'm just recognizing it's like Abkhazia, right? You know, I'm just recognizing. In other words, it is not to, for, for Russia to recognize those separatist uh, um, areas is not an invasion, right? So it cannot mm -hmm. justify the type of uh, response that the West is talking about. So it's so not an invasion, but uh, it will create a new situation where uh, he will say, well, you know, now we recognize them and look, they're asking for help. And the West yeah. will say, well, no, no, you're, this is getting a little bit, you know, too much of a problem because you're asking, the, you're going to give them an alliance and we have to give uh, 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 Ukraine an alliance. And then the Russians will say, you know something, okay, we will refrain from signing an official alliance with these countries, which we have recognized, and you will uh, refrain from any further support of Ukraine let's say in the short term i promise you that the headlines will continue to say that uh we are on the cusp of world war three and uh why because putin wants that and so all of the russian propaganda is going to on one hand say we're not going to invade on the other hand to give out information which seems to indicate that things are very tense and god knows what's going to happen mm -hmm. the americans the american administration has an interest in that because even though they know that russia isn't going to invade they the the worse the crises then the greater the credit goes to biden for uh, for uh, for preventing the, the crisis for mitigating yeah. it uh, so they have an interest as well 
And the echo chamber of the international press is uh, happy because then everybody is reading the news because if there's no, no news, then why read the, why watch the, <laughs> go on the websites and why so, read the news? So the, the circle of systems benefits as, as, as is, has been and will always be. <laughs> yeah, right, um, right. So, so the question isn't what the headlines are going to be. The question is what's really going to happen. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been really insightful. Apart from Russia, is there one or two things that are at the top of your interest right now? Iran is at the top of my interest, definitely. I think that the opportunity that uh, Biden thought that he'd reach an agreement with the Iranians at the beginning of his uh, uh, term in office, and he didn't. And I think that uh, the Iranians aren't looking for uh, a real agreement now. Uh, They would be happy to have some sort of interim agreement which would lift sanctions. But uh, ultimately, we are going to be dealing for the next uh, years um, with ups and downs in the Iranian nuclear program, which, uh, first of all, definitely will uh, benefit uh, Israel in terms of its relations with the Gulf states, as we've just seen. Uh, But also, uh, we are seeing a sort of reconfiguration of the Middle East around that issue. Uh, And in this reconfiguration of the Middle East, we see a change in Iraq, and the Iranians are going to fight for everything they have in Iraq. In other words, a possible uh, attempt by the Iranians to prevent the forming of a government in Iraq by Muqtada Sada. Uh, we're going to see elections in uh, Lebanon in May, where the possibility of, we're talking about a country which has now allowed for the first time a quarter of a million uh, Lebanese expats to vote and 200 and about a quarter of a million have already registered, which means it's going to have an enormous effect on the parliament and on politics in uh, Lebanon, uh, which is now a completely failed state. And we're going to see Iran fighting for all of its assets in Lebanon, in Iraq, in Syria, uh, which may at some point or another uh, result in uh, conflict uh, where they will believe that by Uh, any sort of um, offensive attacks on Israel that they can uh, muster, you know, Muslims, Arabs, etc. And uh, this could definitely result in a round of hostility, either Israel-Lebanon or even Israel-Iran. Okay, well, thank you. And a completely last non-expert related question what is a song that you've recently been listening to that you really enjoy? Uh, you wouldn't know it because I'm listening to Israeli music. <laughs> Israeli music. Uh, I'm very fond of an Israeli uh, song which uh, uh, talks about, is there any place in the world, which I'm trying to translate now, uh, any place in the world which is so high up that you can see, like Moses did on the Nebo mountain, that you can see very, very clear and very, very far. And uh, that sort of resonates with me that, uh, you know, we live in a world of uh, uncertainty. Is there any place that we can position ourselves where we can take a look and we can say, oh, from here, I can really see well. That's actually really nice. Thank you for that. Um, Thank you generally for joining us. This has been very, very interesting. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Odessa Primus and Michael Koran from the Global Arena Research Institute. We specialize in complex analysis for almost any given issue using big data and AI technologies. It's been a pleasure. Have a great day.